History This Week, November 10th, 1969. I'm Sally Helm. It's a Monday. Across the U.S., parents and babysitters and grandparents and aunts and uncles are turning on the TV. Because there's a new show out today for kids. It promises to be more than mindless entertainment. It's going to actually teach children things they need to know. The show begins with a claymation sequence on a pink background. Two little monsters walk onto the screen and reveal the show's title in blocky clay letters. Sesame Street. Then a song breaks in. Sunny day, chasing the clouds away. It's the first time that this theme song has played on TV, but you may very well be hearing it in your head right now. Because Sesame Street, which in 1969 was this new experimental idea, it has now been on the air for more than 50 years. It's been viewed by 80 million Americans, and it's aired in 120 countries. Some people call it the most influential show in the history of TV. That first episode gives viewers the basics. The main character, Gordon, walks around the street with a kid named Sally. No relation. He shows her the street. Susan, come here. Hi, Why don't you honey, say hello to Sally? Hi, Sally. What are you doing home from school huh? so early? Human characters and Muppets living together in a place that's modeled after the Harlem neighborhood of New York City. The Muppets are, of course, puppets. Gordon and Sally meet Big Bird. Hello, Big Bird. Oh, hi, Gordon. They go to see Bert and Ernie. Hey, you hear that singing? Come here. That's Ernie. Ernie lives down in the basement, and he lives, lives there with his friend Bert. They talk to Oscar the Grouch, who back then is orange, not green. Uh, go away. Close my candle, dear. You're letting all the fresh air and sunlight in. Boy, I hate that. Uh. They meet Kermit the Frog. And along the way, kids watching at home are learning concepts, including numbers and letters. Like W. Kermit gives a whole lecture about it. And 2, which is Ernie's favorite number. He loves it so much that he cries. Ernie. Gilbert, Gilbert, that there are two of us. You and me. Did you ever think of that? You and me. That makes two. Oh, oh, I love the number two. Ernie. Ernie. When the hour is over, parents and kids turn off the TV. But life with Sesame Street has just begun. It started a revolution in children's television. You know, to me, all roads lead back to Sesame Street. Today, the road to Sesame Street. This is a massively important and admittedly slightly weird TV show for kids. One Time Magazine writer called it, quote, as meticulously planned as a semester at medical school. And it actually was educational. It worked. So how was Sesame Street born? And how did it help change the way millions of children learn? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The story of Sesame Street starts on the living room floor of a home near New York City. 
since 1965. A man named Lloyd Morissette lives in this house with his young daughter, Sarah. She's three. And he notices that in the mornings, before her parents are even awake, Sarah would sneak downstairs. And she would turn on the television and she would sit cross-legged in front of the screen watching the test pattern. We heard the story from Michael Davis, a preschool teacher turned journalist who wrote a big book about the history of Sesame Street. We don't see the test pattern much anymore, but it was a card that was broadcast in the minutes before the broadcast day would begin. So it's like the most boring thing you can imagine on TV. It's not even a program. Right, it was not a program, not at all. It was just a screen with some lines and bars on it. Maybe a static image if you were lucky. It sounded like this. And it only ended when the test pattern faded to black and the program day began. In the mid-1960s, program options for a kid like Sarah were pretty limited. Television was really in its infancy still. So there wasn't a heck of a lot for kids to watch. Children's television was cartoons and locally produced kitty shows that starred the local weatherman who wore a frontiersman outfit or a circus clown a costume. And it really didn't offer very much for the soul or educationally, with a few exceptions. Like a popular show on CBS called Captain Kangaroo. Irving is a juggler. And there had been others, too. If we don't let Irving juggle... But these programs were pretty simple. One reason there weren't a ton of great options for kids, especially for three-year-olds like Sarah, is that at the time, people didn't really think that preschoolers could learn challenging stuff. Pity the poor preschooler of the 1950s and early 60s, because people just didn't give them very much credit for being what we know they are right now, and that is little sponges who could learn a lot. But Sarah was learning exactly nothing from the test pattern. I mean, maybe she was learning how to make a horrible high-pitched sound that she could annoy her parents with. But when her dad, Lloyd Morissette, comes down the stairs and sees her there, he is struck by just how mesmerized she is with the TV. He thought, what the hell? What is it about this piece of furniture that has a picture tube in it that compels my daughter to leave a warm bed and to sit and watch nothing? And that's really, the test pattern was nothing. And so he really began to wonder, could this magnetism, this attraction be used for a greater good? Lloyd Morissette works in the world of philanthropy. And soon after he has this thought, he finds himself at a dinner party at the home of a woman named Joan Gantz Cooney. Cooney was working in educational TV at the time. There are other nonprofit types at the dinner party, too. It's December 1965. They're all eating a beef bourguignon recipe straight out of Julia Child's recipe book. And Morissette tells the table this story about his daughter. But he actually asked aloud, I wonder if television could be used for a greater purpose. Does anybody think that it could? And Joan popped up and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't know that it can, but I would sure like to be the one to try. The idea felt right to Joan Gantz Cooney, partly because 
She had recently made a documentary about a program in Harlem that was trying to help very young kids get ready for school. The program was actually a precursor to Head Start. And it existed because... There were huge disparities in the way that children approach their first day of public school. Remember, all young kids were suffering from the fact that people didn't really know how much they could learn. But still, children who had more resources, whose parents had more money, tended to be better prepared when they got to school. Maybe because both parents didn't have to work such long hours, had more time to read to them, and more money to buy educational toys. And there are really obvious racial disparities here. Black and Hispanic kids tended to be at a disadvantage. Cooney and Morissette were white and well-off, in a position of privilege. And they're thinking about these disparities. The whole country was thinking about them at the time. President Johnson had recently launched his war on poverty. The civil rights movement was calling attention to many disparities that minority kids faced. And overall, early childhood education, including kindergarten, was not as robust as what exists today. Some states didn't have kindergarten at all. These are huge problems that obviously take a lot of societal investment to solve. But Cooney and Morissette wonder if part of the solution might already be in people's living rooms. Most families had a television, and television became the prime source of entertainment for umpteen million people on a daily basis. So why not turn to television as a potential answer to help kids? So TV is really accessible. And if Sarah Morissette is any example, it is also already mesmerizing for kids. Joan Gantz Cooney and Lloyd Morissette leave this dinner party with the seeds of an idea. It springs from a basic question. Can television teach children? And that basic question, pretty soon? It morphed into something finer. And that was, could we create a plan to take the best of educational theory and give this television show a curriculum. To answer their questions, the team takes a scientific approach. They bring together some of the top experts in the field of children's education. Social scientists, educational theorists, child psychologists, researchers. They're thinking of the show as almost a scientific experiment in how to help kids learn. But they knew it also had to be fun. We're going to create a television program that you would want children to watch. It couldn't be spinach. It would have to have a little ice cream. Early on, Cooney brings in a producer from that show, Captain Kangaroo. John Stone was a born entertainer and thinker and very funny, could easily access his inner child. He really was the person who was able to take the concepts but create a vision for those concepts. One of Stone's first big ideas was about setting. He completely rejected a fantasy set, you know, a dude ranch or a castle. Instead, he wanted to set it in the real world, in a place that looked like Harlem, on a realistic city street. At the same time, Stone knew that the show also needed to be fun and fantastical. And he said, I think we should bring in my friend Jim Henson. He could add an element to the show that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Henson was a performer and a puppeteer. He and his wife Jane had already created The Muppets. 
these very funny puppets had appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show and been in some commercials, like one for canned Chinese food. May I make a suggestion? Who are you? I'm a toy dragon! Yeah, a real dragon! Pinson hadn't specifically worked on kids' entertainment, and he didn't really want to. But he's friends with John Stone, and Stone convinces him to come on board. Henson wasn't what everyone expected. He showed up to one early meeting to discuss curriculum. And Joan Gantz Cooney looked up, and she was stunned because, you know, here was this hippie with a fringe jacket, and it was the time of, you know, violent hippies showing up like the weatherman. And she wondered if he was there to kind of blow up the meeting. You know, that was her first impression of Jim Hansen. And how funny is it that he didn't sort of blow up children's television in a way. With Henson on board, the wheels really started turning. For one thing, he had a knack for creating funny characters that appealed to children on one level and also adults on a whole different level. Like, to just take one example, there's a skit where Cookie Monster goes on a game show. The television MC tells Cookie, basically, you know, you can have a washer-dryer and a trip to Hawaii, or you could win a cookie. And the camera zeroes in on Cookie Monster, but, oh, it's a tough decision. <laughs> what to do? A dryer and a trip to Hawaii or cookie? He picked the cookie. So the show's going to be funny. But they're also planning to sneak in some serious educational ideas. Davis says the term for what they were doing in the writer's room is a curriculum bath. The writers are brought into a room and they're surrounded by these educational researchers who talk to them about the concepts. And then the writers are are given time to absorb those concepts and talk about them to bring those concepts to life. Then, in keeping with their scientific approach, they do tests. They brought in preschool-aged children and had them watch episodes in a room full of distractions. And then they track how often the kids looked away from the screen. If they looked away too often, the writers and producers would go back and rewrite the scene or episode to try and keep their attention. This, by the way, is very common now in TV, but Sesame Street really started it. Some of their most successful segments were these short, attention-grabbing skits that taught lessons. For example, a fake commercial that taught counting. Tuneful little 30-second vignettes that were meant to teach numbers and letters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You know? (laughs) It was like a commercial. Or they'd write skits where the Muppets were these unconventional teachers. The clip that everyone remembers is Grover teaching near and far, you know, where he's running toward the camera, running away from the camera. And the show was also trying to teach a bigger societal lesson. They were determined to assemble a multiracial cast. The idea was to show a place where people could get along with each other, and learn from each other. Now you look back and you say, wow, revolutionary for its time. So they're pulling all these concepts together, plus raising money, getting the word out, getting ready to launch. This show is a totally new idea. They don't know if it's going to work. Nobody really had any idea how this show was going to be accepted. 
The multiracial cast was just one aspect of it, but the whole idea of getting American viewers to tune to something called PBS, which was very, very, very young at the time, and in a lot of major metropolitan areas, almost inaccessible. Because it wasn't on channel two or five, but rather on a channel like 34. In 1969, you had to physically tune the TV to get there, like an old-fashioned radio. And so the odds were against it being a hit. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sesame Street debuts in November of 1969, and it quickly becomes a hit. By the second week, an estimated 1.9 million households were tuning in, and the numbers only went up from there. In 1970, Big Bird is on the cover of Time magazine. Ernie's bath time rubber ducky song hit the top 100 singles billboard chart for nine weeks. And pretty soon, it's clear that the show is also having measurable benefits for kids educationally. A 1970 study found that kids who watched Sesame Street actually did know more and that it was particularly helpful for kids from poorer areas. Plus, it was really inexpensive. In those first years, it cost an estimated penny per kid who watched it. But Sesame Street wasn't a hit everywhere. There was pushback in the Deep South. It was all about the interracial cast. Nobody made any bones about it. The idea of having a television program where white kids were holding the hands of black kids and just was anathema. In May of 1970, a board of educational consultants gathered in Mississippi and decided to ban Sesame Street. But in the end... Good old-fashioned viewer demand put an end to the, the ban. The moms wanted it for their children, and the children wanted it. Sesame Street was becoming a cultural phenomenon. Pretty soon... You couldn't go down a street in New York or Chicago or Philadelphia or Poughkeepsie and not see a child in a stroller with a bird or an Ernie or a Cookie Monster or a Big Bird, especially Big Bird. Over the show's first several seasons, the writers experimented and Sesame Street found its groove. So take Big Bird, for example. At first, his character is kind of a buffoon. Oh, hi, Sally. Hi, Sally. Where's Sally? Big Bird, look down, look down, look down, this way. But the writers realize it's better to base him on a child. Curious, always asking questions. In season two, Oscar the Grouch goes from orange to green. 
Jim Henson just thought it worked better. So the writers sent him on a vacation to a swamp and he came back green. And in those early years, the cast changes too. The show gets criticism for not having Latinx characters and not having that many women. And it responds to those critics by adding new cast members and new Muppets. As the years go on, the show becomes known for tackling tough topics. Famously, in 1982, the actor who played the character Mr. Hooper dies of a heart attack. And the show decides to use that moment to talk to kids about death. Mr. Hooper died. He's dead. There are also some tough topics the show tries that don't pan out as well. Like the first time they tried to make an episode about divorce. It was a disaster. They tested it with audiences and the kids were like, ooh. <laughs> you know, it became like the third rail of, of, of Sesame Street. You can create a show about death, but not divorce, right? And not every character the show tries ends up sticking around. Like starting in 1970, there's a Muppet named Roosevelt Franklin. Who was demonstrably African-American. He spoke in Black vernacular. Roosevelt was created by a Black writer on the show, Matt Robinson. But Black viewers are split. Is Roosevelt an effective character and a good role model? Or is he trafficking in stereotypes? In the end, Sesame Street takes him off the show in 1975. Over the years, and up to the present day, the show keeps changing. New characters and new Muppets join the street, a lot of times adding to its diversity. Starting in 1975, there was a recurring character with Down syndrome. Today, there's a Muppet who has autism. Sesame Street has also spread around the world, adding new characters depending on the context. Like, in South Africa, there was an HIV-positive Muppet who helped teach kids not to be afraid of people who have that status. Back in the U.S., Davis told us, today's Sesame Street is different from what it was in earlier decades and that it's way more of a show attuned to the interests of younger preschoolers. It is much less of a show that adults would just run to to watch. Also, starting this season, new episodes will debut on HBO Max, a paid service. Some have criticized this move because they say it goes against Sesame Street's roots as a show that's geared towards helping poor kids, though episodes will still run later on PBS, where anyone can watch them. In any case, Davis says, Sesame Street's influence has at this point spread way beyond the show itself because it was a roadmap for children's television. It changed the kind of show that could be made. It challenged television producers to come up with content for kids that enriches their life. And, you know, there wouldn't have been a, a Blue's Clues had there not been a Sesame Street. We wouldn't have seen these great shows on Nickelodeon and Disney for preschoolers. Sesame Street said, it's not only okay to produce this kind of television, you must. Sesame Street actually did what it set out to do. A recent study went back and looked at the data and found that kids who had access to Sesame Street were 14% more likely to be performing at their correct grade level in school, and that the effect was especially big for boys and for Black and Hispanic kids. So a huge effect for not much money. I'm 
continually astounded by the power of that idea that started at the dinner party, you know? One question, one answer has resulted in this world-changing, humanizing brand of television that is still very committed to helping children become their best selves. One letter and one number at a time. Sally, Sally, let's get Susan over here quick. It's almost time to go. Susan, Susan come on over. Susan. This is the end of Sally's big day. First day on Sesame Street. Yeah. Did you have fun, Sally? Sure. You like Sesame Street. Well, look who she Good met. Girl. She met Bert. Yeah, met me. And she met Ernie. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a seven-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device, with new videos added every week. To start your free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.